All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our time of study. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word to reveal to us truth, that these words that you have revealed to us shall not fall to the ground unnoticed and not applied. Father, we're thankful for all that you have revealed to us, for they enable us to understand your thinking, what we refer to as divine viewpoint. It is the mind of Christ that has been revealed to us in your word that we might spend our time studying it, learning about it, meditating and reflecting upon it, mulling over it, and letting God the Holy Spirit reveal to us how we need to apply these things to our lives. Father, we're thankful that we have your word and that we can come to understand more fully that which our Lord endured as he went to the cross, bearing in his own body on the tree our sins, that we might, through his death and belief in him and belief alone in him and his work on the cross, have eternal life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are continuing our study of what transpired between the trials of Jesus and uh, his burial. And there are over 30 different stages that are revealed in Scripture. Not all of them are revealed in all in each of the Gospels. Some Gospels record some events, some others. And so what I have done is going through the uh, various uh, parallels or harmonies that are presented, looking at each of these different events, and then trying to understand what is going on here. Why have these things been revealed to us? What is their significance? If you were living in the first century and you read about these trials, you read about the floggings, you read about the crucifixions, you would not need much instruction on what those things meant. That's why there's not a lot of detail given in the Scripture. It amazes me as we read through the Scripture how economic the Holy Spirit is in the way he uses words and describes these events. I would think that if this were made up, as many people contend who have rejected Christianity, if this were the product of human imagination, that we would find much different accounts. We see this when we look at similar things 
in the scripture that are also spoken about through secular sources and how uh, they have exaggerated and embellished and introduced almost fantastical types of, of things. Uh, and yet when we come to the scripture, one of the things I believe the testimony that gives testimony to its accuracy is that it is, you don't find this sort of uh, embellishment, you don't find fantastic or uh, bizarre mythological type of miracles that are explained. It's just very uh, simple as we study the scripture. So today we're going to move from the procession of Jesus to the cross, which is what we looked at last time, and I'll review it briefly. And then we're going to look at what happens during those first three hours on the cross from 9 a.m. until noon under the category of the wrath of men as Jesus experiences mock the, not only the crucifixion itself, but also uh, the mockings of the uh, crowds that are there and others. Now, we probably won't get to the mockings until uh, next week. Just a reminder, in the trials, the Roman soldiers uh, scourged Jesus. They beat him uh, with a Roman uh, flagrum. And here is a diagram indicating how this was usually carried out uh, by the Romans as they would tie the victim to a post uh, where he is uh, virtually incapable of escaping or turning or avoiding it. The uh, Roman flagrum pictured here had various uh, things woven into the strips of leather, whether it's rocks or metal or glass, designed to rip open the flesh, expose the muscles, and to produce a lot of bleeding that would lead to the weakening of the victim. Often a victim would die before they ever got uh, to the cross. Jesus was further mocked and ridiculed a Purple robe was put on him, crown of thorns. All of this would lead to, uh, in a, in a uh, sinful human, to increased stress. But what I keep pointing out is our Lord is relaxed. He is able to face this because of his complete and total trust in the Lord. The crowds are hostile to him, crying out, crucify him. Uh, crucify him, and indeed the leaders are calling for his crucifixion because he claimed to be the Son of God. And the irony of that verse is that they are crucifying him for who he really and truly is. And their very words attest to the reality that Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Son of God. And if you are familiar with liberal theology and the theology of the critics of Christianity. They claim Jesus made no such claim, and yet even his enemies crucified him for that the very reason that he made that particular claim. And so last time we looked at the beginning, at the procession to the cross, you'll see that there's a slightly different picture here because John Haidt was uh, gracious enough to go in and Photoshop out the stipes, that is the long vertical part of the cross, so that Jesus is only uh, carrying the uh, patibulum. 
uh, across his shoulders. So I appreciated John uh, going to that effort for us. They, I'm going to briefly review the stages. The first stage is they led Jesus out to crucify him. And as we looked at the maps, this trials of Jesus, as I pointed out before, is located down here in the, on the west side of the old city of Jerusalem where the praetorium was located. Now, I'm going to refer to some things later on, but you've heard me mention um, a man who has been very helpful to uh, me on several trips to Israel, Joel Kramer. You can, since um, we were last there in 2014, uh, a couple of people on some of Joel's trips have posted some videos of some of his talks. He has one on the Praetorium. He has another one on the Holy Church of the Holy Sepulcher. If you would like to see more, learn more, then you can go to YouTube and just uh, just uh, search his name. Kramer is spelled with a K, K-R-A-M-E-R. And you can watch those. They're quite interesting. He has one on the Praetorium where he goes down to the current wall, which wasn't necessarily, um, which wasn't <clears throat> the original wall, but it was, it's built on the original wall. And he goes to a site just to the south of the Jaffa Gate and shows and gives the arguments for why the Praetorium was located there. He also has another video on Holy Sepulchre, but if you haven't been there, I've been there, and I'm not quite sure where he's standing in some places, and I've been there quite a few times, but it's interesting to uh, <clears throat> understand uh, where these things are and that they're grounded in history, they're grounded in in fact, they're grounded in historical evidence, and much is being discovered these days in terms of, of archaeological uh, validation of what the Scripture says. So that Golgotha is located outside what was uh, Josephus's uh, second wall here. Uh, I believe that's what it what it is. And uh, let me back up to make sure I have the right term. Yes, yeah, the second wall. And it is located very close to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. This area, which was an abandoned quarry, was an area where they had hollowed out many graves. So it was a graveyard, but it's also located near the road coming in from the, uh, from the west into Jerusalem so that many travelers would observe the criminals who were being uh, crucified. This is another view of the same thing. Golgotha here is a, I believe it is a name that doesn't indicate, there's basically three views on the significance of Golgotha. One is that it looked like a skull. And I showed a picture last time of how those at the garden tomb uh, have a rocky area there and it looks like a skull there, but that's uh, that's where uh, Charles Gordon identified it in the 19th century, but there's been a lot of erosion even in the last hundred years, and so one wonders what that may have looked like 1,800 years before he saw it, and it probably did not look like a skull. I also pointed out that the graves in that area were from a much earlier period in the, in the first, first temple. A second view on the naming of Golgotha is that, well, maybe there were skulls on the ground. I usually read that that's mentioned, and that's easily debunked because under Jewish law, you would not have had 
uh, bones, skeletal remains of human beings exposed. That would make the ground unclean. And so that is easily uh, debunked as well. But a lot of people tend to think that it was named that way because of, of um, uh, of the way it looked. I don't think that. I have had this view for a long time and and had actually developed the same illustration when I read Arnold Fruchtenbaum on this, and uh, he had the same view, so we great minds think alike, so we could come to the same conclusion, that it was called the place of the skull because this was where executions took place. Let's think in American history we have an illustration of this in the Old West, cities like Dodge City and Tombstone and other places, had uh, uh, graveyards that were called Boot Hill. I've been to the Boot Hill both in Dodge City and in uh, Tombstone, and it doesn't look like a boot. You don't see boots lying on the ground, but they were named that way because many of the uh, men who were buried there died with their boots on. So they are, it is a place where they were, uh, they died with their boots on, and so that became uh, what they were called, and you had those areas all around uh, the West. So I think that uh, Golgotha is named that because of the fact that this is where executions came, uh, took place, where the criminals died, and it was also right there at a cemetery. Uh, where people were buried, and so there were these skulls on the ground. On his way to the cross, Jesus was too weak to carry the uh, uh, patibulum. Uh, uh, it is, I looked up the, uh, tried to look at the pronunciation of this word. Now, the English pronunciation is patibulum. Then this morning I found a website that actually pronounced the Latin terms, and it was patibulum. So, uh, and stipes. So that was giving the Latin translation. Of course, no one alive knows what, how they actually pronounced the Latin. But the, only the patibulum, the cross beam, was carried to the cross. They conscripted Simon of Cyrene to carry that. In the third stage, Jesus stops and he talks graciously to these mourners warns them of the judgment that will come in A.D. 70, that they should not be weeping for him but for themselves and for their children who would go through that judgment. In the fourth stage, they arrived at Golgotha, the place of the skull, and it is also called Calvary, which is just the Latin translation, the place of the skull, and this is where Jesus was crucified. It is marked today by the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and I pointed this out last time. There is a competing site. There's only one. Over For 1,800 years, there was no other view of where the crucifixion took place. I went through the evidence last time, and it wasn't until Charles Gordon came along in the 1880s and suggested a different site but he had wrong information because the wall that they thought was the wall around Jerusalem at that time actually wasn't built until after after Jesus. I pointed out that this is about from here to here is approximately 60 yards, 
And this is a rock outcropping that is enclosed in glass, and you can go up a set of stairs. And there's, a, a, as you see here, there's a Greek Calvary and a um, then a Latin Calvary. So once again, the Western Roman Church, called the Lat Latin Church here, has one view, and the Eastern Orthodox has another view. And you go up there, and it's just very ornate, and there's a lot of smells and bells, and you, uh, a lot of Protestants are turned off by this. But I was reading in a, a work by Shimon Gibson, who is a noted archaeologist, published archaeologist in Israel, who back in the 70s had uh, the opportunity with a colleague to go when they were renovating this this area uh, that's really a, a up the, on top of these stairs, and they had taken away all of these this covering and protection and glass and everything, and they were doing some cleaning and renovations, and, and they got a chance to do various measurements and to analyze the uh, stone and everything, and their conclusion was from getting in there that the idea that Jesus is crucified on top of this rock is unrealistic because it's very narrow and it would not be possible. And so it really gives uh, a lie to the hymn, The Old Rugged Cross, on a hill far away. It wasn't on a hill. So that, it, that everybody gets this idea that Jesus is crucified and you see all these pictures with the little hill and the three crosses and that's just not the way it was. He would have been crucified on ground level so that the people walking by on the road would have been able to look right at those uh, men who were being crucified and see the horrors of the crucifixion. Gibson and others, and Joel Kramer makes a case for this in his video, identify this location as the location that would have been to the uh, side of the uh, rock outcropping, that this in this apse, this marks the area. There's evidence for that. I'm not sure uh, that we know precisely where the area would have been, but that is, uh, that's their argument. I think that's superior, much superior reasoning than that it was on top of this, this rock outcropping. So we have looked at the arrival. Then stage five, Jesus was given wine with gall. This was uh, an anesthetic to deaden the pain. He tasted it, according to Matthew, and rejected it. He did not want to be anesthetized in any way as he endured the cross. Then I began with the first three hours, the wrath of man, Matthew 15, 24 to 32, Matthew 27, uh, 35 to 44, Luke 23, 33 to 43, and John 19, 18 to 27. I began or ended the class last week talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. Matthew tells us simply, then they crucified him. Mark adds that it was the third hour, 9 a.m. in the morning, when they crucified him. He's using Roman time where the day started at, um, uh, at uh, uh, or excuse me, he's using, uh, yeah, I think it was Roman time where the day started at, at, at sunrise. And so this is the third hour 
and they crucified him. I may be wrong on the Roman time, but it starts at 6 a.m., and so they're crucifying him at 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, that's important because on this day, which is the first day of Passover, on this day, on the first day of Passover, this is the time of the uh, morning uh, sacrifice for Passover. It was... uh, so at the same time that they are sacrificing the Haggigah, which is the Passover, the special Passover sacrifice, Jesus is being sacrificed on the cross at um, on Golgotha. Someone asked me last week if Jesus, when he was on the cross, could see the temple where they were sacrificing the lamb. And that's not likely because he was being crucified, as I said, at ground level, just outside the western wall of Jerusalem at that time, so he would not have had a visual of the temple from where he was. Now, I pointed this out last time, that there were these, wait a minute, these four stages of crucifixion, I'm going to skip that, Um, these four stages of crucifixion where the criminal would carry the uh, patibulum to the execution site, then he would be tied or nailed to the patibulum, and then it would be raised to the cross. Now, there were different kinds of crosses that were used by the Romans. This is the... um, This is the tall version, which I believe is accurate, uh, the vertical post is called the stipes, the cross beam, the patibulum, and or patibulum, and it was raised by a means of a post that had a forked end, and the Roman soldiers would lift that cross beam along with the victim up. There was a place where they had a, a wedge called a sedia, which is uh, nailed to the uh, vertical steep as, and this was where they could get a little purchase for their feet and, and push themselves up a, a, a little bit. There were four types of crosses that were used by the Romans at that time. The first time was just called a crux simplex, and it was just a vertical post where the hands were tied over, or nailed over the head of the victim, and then the feet were tied or nailed to the that vertical post. The second type was called the crux decusata, which is named because it resembled the Roman numeral uh, 10, and the the Roman or Latin for 10 was uh, decusus, so that is the source of it. This was the type of cross Peter was crucified on, but he was crucified upside down. These two were typically used in Italy, they were not used outside of Italy in the uh, areas, other areas of the Roman Empire. The third type was called the crux uh, uh, comissa. It is also referred to as the tau cross, the Greek letter T, and this is the most likely uh, form of the cross that was used in, uh, in the Middle East. It is. Uh, some people have said, "Well, there's no place there for uh, for the um, 
uh, sign to be posted and that you see in this picture there's plenty of room because as the victim hung from the nails, his head would not be blocking it. His head would be lowered as he, as he hung there and they could uh, even nail this a little bit higher. The cross most people think of was called the, is in Latin the crux emisa, which means the inserted cross. Now, when they nailed the victim to the cross, they would nail his feet a certain way. Now, the picture that many of us have seen is where the, 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 the feet are sort of flat against the, against the cross and overlapped and then a nail driven through, through the feet. However, in 1968, a, a, as a grave was being uh, excavated in Jerusalem, they uh, opened an ossuary, and in that ossuary they found an ankle bone that had a nail driven through it, and there was part of the wood cross still attached to that nail. It was uh, apparently when they drove the nail in, the nail went into a knot in the wood, and it was difficult to extract, so when they did extract it, they brought some of the wood with it. Here is a picture of that ankle bone with the nail through it. It is on display, or a facsimile of it is on display at the Israel Museum that we visit when we go to Israel. It was actually buried under uh, rabbinical by rabbinical law uh, in Jerusalem, so they couldn't actually keep the human bone uh, without burying it, giving honor to the body. The way in which this was portrayed is uh, in this model here where the foot hung down and the nail is driven through the ankle bone so that in this picture in the lower right, the feet were placed on each side of the steepaz and then the, the nail was driven through the ankle bone on each side. So it's very different from what you may imagine and it was not Painless. All of this suffering leading up to the cross is not salvific. I want you to think about that. Because in reform, that is Calvinist teaching, is they talk about passive suffering of Jesus and the active suffering of Jesus. And they believe that all of the suffering in Jesus' life is salvific. However, the Scripture teaches that it is only that time period from 12 noon to 3 p.m. that the Father turns his back on the Son judicially. When Jesus cries out, as we read in Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is when the judgment is poured out on Christ. That is when he pays the penalty for our sin is during those three hours, as we will see, between 12 noon and 3 p.m. Regarding the uh, <clears throat> the hands and their being nailed to the cross, uh, I have this visual. I wasn't sure which one would look more clear to you. I think this one is better. You can see this one a little better. You have this the uh, nail spike pictured on the left. Here is a picture of the a diagram of the wrist. And here is the top of the spike that is driven into the wrist just below uh, the hand. Now, we need to realize that in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for hand, in Hebrew it is yad, and in Greek it is kir. 
that this these terms include everything from the hand to the forearm. So it is not a term that is specific to just the hand or the palm. So if you put the nail through the palm, uh, because all of these finger bones radiate out from the base, it would easily rip through the skin and the, and the tissue there, and it would not support the weight of a man. So by putting it uh, at the base of the, of, the, um, of the wrist there, at the base of the hand, that would support uh, the wrist. See, here is a vertic- is a, another cutaway that shows you how this would have um, uh, intersected with the wrist, and it would have pierced the median nerve, and uh, also you have the ulnar nerve and artery going through here, and it would have been uh, quite painful. And so following this, lifting Jesus up, they would have also had a tablet that was either hung around the victim's neck. Scripture says in in Jesus' case it was nailed to the top of the cross that would indicate the crime. We will look at that in one of our stages this morning. Psalm 22.14 depicts this. Jesus is portrayed as saying this um, in the words of David in the psalm, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue clings to my jaws, just, just the extreme thirst. You have brought me to the dust of death. That is, that takes us back to, uh, the, the uh, curse of sin in Genesis 3 from Dust you came, to dust you will return. For dogs have surrounded me. Dogs is often a pejorative term for Gentiles, and the Roman soldiers have surrounded Jesus on the cross. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. That is, those who had had rejected him and condemned him to death. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones because of the flagellation that had taken place. They, that is the bones, look and stare at me. That is stage six. Stage seven, they crucified Jesus alongside two others, two criminals, one on each side with Jesus in the middle, as John states it specifically. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-eight says, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. John says, where they crucified him and two others with him, doesn't identify what their crimes were in John, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now, in Matthew and Mark, the term lathes is used of these criminals. Uh, It's translated robbers. Actually, the term was used later by Josephus to refer to rebels, to insurrectionists, to those who were in rebellion against uh, against Rome. And so they're, they're not being crucified. Uh, that would have violated Jewish law to crucify them for a crime such as theft. They are being crucified because they, they may have had some th- uh, thievery, but they were using the money, uh, stealing it to finance their... Uh, revolt against Rome. 
The other term that is used by Luke is uh, kakurgos. Kaka is evil, and orgos uh, is from the word for work, and it simply means an evildoer. It is a more general term. But Matthew and Mark give us a specific that these were probably uh, criminals like Barabbas, probably captured with Barabbas, and they were probably his uh, co-rebels, and they are being crucified uh, with Jesus. This is a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's the phrase in that uh, messianic prophecy, that messianic uh, prophecy of Isaiah 53, 12, and goes on to say, And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The next, stage 8, we see the first saying on the cross. Now, there was a saying on the way to the cross where Jesus, in grace and compassion, warned the uh, daughters of Jerusalem not to mourn for him, but to mourn for uh, themselves and for their children who would go through the judgment of A.D. 70. I want to point this out because what we see here in the midst of all of this torture, in the midst of everything that is transpiring, what we see from these statements of Jesus on the cross, and there are seven statements on the cross, is grace and forgiveness being emphasized. Grace on the way to the cross and here we're told Jesus' first statement recorded in Luke, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, there's some question about what Jesus meant by this. Obviously, he is stating clearly for the Father to forgive someone, that is to cancel out this particular sin, which is what forgiveness means. But to whom is Jesus referring? That's where the debate lies. When he says, forgive them, to whom does the word them refer? Some say he is talking about the Roman soldiers that are surrounding the cross. There would have been four of them. Is, or maybe he is talking about the people who have been involved, uh, generally the people of Israel, and then others say that they debate whether or not he would have included Antipas and Pilate, Caiaphas, and the other religious leaders. And the issue is, what does he mean when he says, for they do not know what they do? And they say, well, they clearly understood what they were doing. They rejected him as Messiah. They rejected his claims to be the Son of God. They knew that they were crucifying him for being the Son of God. But this is not talking about, did they, were they aware of this kind of information? I believe that when Jesus says they do not know what they do, that he is talking in a broader sense that they did not truly understand the significance of what they are doing. They may have crucified him for being the Son of God, but they didn't believe that he was. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. Uh, they crucified him, but they were completely ignorant of what they were actually doing. So in the ultimate sense, they did not know 
what they were doing. And this makes more sense because in Acts 7.60, in a similar circumstance, when Stephen was being stoned, he echoed what the Lord said. And as he was about to die, he said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And he is talking about the uh, religious leaders who are stoning him to death. And so Jesus is showing, demonstrating, that his death on the cross has a worldwide application. He is dying for all. He is dying for every sin, and he is dying and paying the penalty for every human being. Now, that doesn't automatically save them because a person has to believe in Jesus as their Savior in order to gain salvation. But the penalty was paid for all, and so Jesus is talking to the Father about forgiving them. This is parallel to the passage we've studied many times in Colossians 2, 12 to 14, which states that the certificate of debt against us was nailed to the cross. That is where that uh, first category of forgiveness took place, which is the removal of sin. So the sin is no longer the issue. The issue is whether or not a person trusts in Christ. And when a person trusts in Christ, they are regenerated. They become spiritually alive. And they are, they receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness and they are declared just. The sin penalty is paid for so that that is no longer the issue. But they are still spiritually dead. We are all born into this world spiritually dead. And we do not have spiritual life, and we do not have righteousness. And so even though the penalty has been paid, we have not been regenerated, and we have not been given perfect righteousness. So Christ's death on the cross paid the penalty for sin so that God could forgive sin, but in order to have those other two things taken care of, we have to trust in Christ. This is why in John 3.18, we read that the one who has not believed in him is condemned already. Why? Because he's spiritually dead and he lacks perfect righteousness. So in the eighth stage, uh, Jesus forgives them for sin and asks the Father to forgive them for this sin. In stage nine, they put a sign over his head, which is an indictment and which expresses the indictment and the charge against him. This is what Matthew says in Matthew 27:37, And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, there are those who will come along and say, well, it's different in every gospel. So this is a contradiction. Well, they don't contradict each other, just that they don't necessarily give the whole statement. Matthew is writing to demonstrate that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And so he focuses on the core statement of the accusation. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Luke says this is the king of the Jews. Doesn't identify his name. That's redundant in his view. Mark just states the king of the Jews. John states the full statement Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So there's no contradiction. It's just that some give a fuller account of what is on the plaque rather than uh, giving the short version. So they set over his head the, these charges. 
John gives us a fuller account of what happens. He says that when Pilate wrote this out and had this accusation put on the cross, and he was doing it probably to poke fun at and to irritate the religious leaders, not because he believed that, but because he knew that if he put that up there, it would really aggravate the religious leaders. And that's what happened in verse 20. Many of the Jews read the title. This plaque was called the Titulus in Latin. Uh, and they were quite upset. Verse 21, or verse 20 tells us it's written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, so everybody would be able to read it and understand what it said. And in verse 21... Uh, we hear their reaction. They went back to Pilate and said, don't write king of the Jews. Uh, but Pilate said, well, that's what he said. That's what you condemned him for. And so that's what he was going to put there. and He wasn't going to uh, change it. And then uh, we see the tenth thing that happens, which is fulfillment of prophecy, that the Roman soldiers divided his garments between them and casted lots. This is described in Matthew 15, uh, or Mark, excuse me, Mark 15:24, Luke 23:34, and John 19:23 to 24, and Matthew writes it this way: Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, quoting from Psalm 22:18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is what is uh, also stated in John 19, that they took his garments and they divided them. There were four soldiers there, and typically what they would do is they would take the clothing of the, uh, of the, of the victim, of the criminal, and they would divide it between them. Uh, the, there would be the upper garment, the undergarment, some kind of head covering, the shoes or sandals, and the robe or the outer uh, coat, which was... Uh, with Jesus was a large single piece of cloth, and it was very well made, indicating that it was probably a gift uh, from somebody uh, who was uh, wealthy. And it was uh, typically the soldiers would would cut it into four pieces and split that. But in this case, it was of such value they decided that it would be a shame to to uh, divide it, and so they uh, cast lots for it. And divided it <clears throat> so that one would uh, one would win it. This is as far as we will go this morning. We will start with the mockings of Jesus next time, reviewing the ones that we have already studied, and then continuing as we walk through what transpired on the cross. We are reminded how Jesus is ridiculed, how he is belittled, how he is mocked. <clears throat> and all of these things, he's beaten, all of this, and he is like a lamb before his shearers is dumb, yet he opened not his mouth, giving evidence that he is in control. He is there for a purpose. This was why he entered into the world, to die on the cross for our sins as our substitute, and by the way he is crucified, he is giving evidence that he is who he claimed to be, and the prophecies from the Old Testament are fulfilled specifically and precisely in him, giving even more evidence that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity, Trinity who entered into human history for the purpose of dying 
for our sins. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to uh, study through these events leading up to the time that Jesus died for our sins. Understanding all of the pain, the suffering, everything that transpired, and how he is trusting in you throughout this time, how he is able to maintain a relaxed mental attitude in his humanity. He is not doing this in his in the power of his deity, but he is doing this in his humanity. He is demonstrating that his mindset, his mental attitude, his focus is totally upon you, and he is resting in your provision and your power to sustain him in these this horrible physical torment. Father, we pray that if there's anyone who is listening this morning, who's hearing the gospel, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 20th time, that you would make it clear to them that Jesus Christ, as the divine sacrifice given by you to man to die as our substitute, being a true human in his humanity. He is paying the price for us. He is dying as our substitute, a perfect man, sinless, uh, without any flaw. He is dying for us, paying our penalty as you will impute to him all of the sins of the world, the sins of those who crucified him, the sins of that generation, the sins of all mankind are imputed to Christ, and he pays that penalty so that by faith alone, nothing else, not faith plus works, not faith plus emotion, just simply believing, trusting, understanding what Jesus did and relying upon it, That is belief, that by believing in him, we have eternal life. And we pray that you would make that clear to unbelievers and for believers that we would gain a greater appreciation of all that was done for us in our salvation. For this just gives us a small portrait of what transpired on the cross. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.